You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Did you know that every facet of our, our behavior is somehow tied to something we believe? When you and I believe the wrong things, it works us out in the, in the form of our behavior. The opposite is true as well. Right thinking pays the way to right behavior and becoming the right kind of person God wants us to be. Andy Stanley writes, We live in a world that lies to us every single day. Repeated exposure to the lies of the world will take its toll. Over time, many of these lies get woven into the fabric of our thinking. We aren't always aware that they're there. In fact, often we are unaware of the ideas that form the basis of our decisions and our attitudes. But these beliefs, whether grounded in reality or not, act as a grid system through which we interpret the data of our lives. For example, if we believe that the world is flat, we are not going to sail too far from the shore. If we believe happiness is found in the, in the accumulation of possessions, we're not going to be very generous people. If we believe that God can't be trusted, or that people can't be trusted, we're not going to have very many close friends. If we believe that we are less complete without a spouse, we will pursue marriage at a very dangerous, intense pace. And if we believe we can't change, we won't. If we believe we are worthless nobodies, we will act like worthless nobodies. If we believe God accepts us on the basis of our performance, we will either perform ourselves to death or we'll just give up altogether. If we believe God is not good, that he cannot be trusted, and he doesn't want the best for us, we will never fully surrender our lives to him. And if we believe that we can habitually sin and get away with it, we will continue to sin. If we believe that God really doesn't answer prayer, we will never become people of prayer. If we believe that there is no God, we will make foolish decisions and hurt ourselves and other people. And it goes on and on. This is why we can promise, we can commit, we can rededicate ourselves over and over again without ever making any progress. Until we deal with our belief system, our behavior will never change. Because what we believe impacts what we do. And what we believe about God will determine whether we behave foolishly or wisely, and will also determine the kind of people we will become. So that being the case, it is imperative that we, imperative that we begin identifying those things in our battery of beliefs that are true and not true. The things that God considers to be foolish and what he considers to be wise. The specific changes we would like to make in our behavior and our character are linked to those things. You know, you can't fill a glass with water if it's already full of dirt. You must first remove the dirt. In the same way, we can't fill our minds with truth until we have identified and removed the lies that reside there. You know, a Christian can sit in church for years and listen to good, sound 
application-oriented messages and never change. We can fully embrace a truth until you have first removed the lie that stands in contrast to that truth. So today, we want to discover what God believes to be foolish and so that we don't repeat those foolish beliefs in our own lives. So if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 53. Just a couple observations I want to make. Psalm 53 is believed to be an adaptation of Psalm 14 with just a few changes. The first difference is that Psalm 14 uses Yahweh or Lord, whereas Psalm 53 uses the divine name Elohim, which means God is judge. This indicates that the psalm was most likely used in different uh, collections, probably in two different geological areas under two different time periods. The second difference is that in Psalm 53 deviates a little bit from the wording from Psalm 14, particularly the last two verses. Psalm 14 emphasizes God's deliverance and care for the, peop- for the poor, whereas Psalm 53 describes in greater detail the judgment and defeat that will befall those who are foolish in the eyes of God. So what accounts for these two differences? Well, there's two theories. The first theory is that a writer discovered an imperfect and defective copy of Psalm 14 and then tried to restore the text as best they could, not knowing or not being able to read the original very well. As a result, you have Psalm 53. The second theory is that a man having the familiar text of Psalm 14 changed the psalm as to make the application to a situation that was prevailing at the time. He made a few alterations to verse 5, and as a result, you have the similarity of the two psalms as well as the apparent differences. As such, the two psalms should be treated separately instead of as a redacted or corrupted version of the other. Another observation, Psalm 53 should be viewed as a song of instruction because it shows the evidence contrasting a fool with those that have insight or what God would consider the wise person. Another observation is we see that the foolishness of our beliefs goes way beyond just the enemies of Israel, but also can be applied to all mankind, to each of our lives. I believe that the purpose of this psalm is to instruct us to seek God and to not live foolishly, because what we believe about God will, be ter- will be determine how we behave and the kind of person we will become. So what is the context of this psalm? Well, nobody really knows. Uh, some think that it's referring to King uh, Saul's persecution of David based on the position of Psalm 52 and Psalm 54. Others probably including me here, see Psalm 53 as being used after David's death later in the history with minor alterations from Psalm 14 that fit the time of the people of Israel who were living godless lives and when Hezekiah, the king of Judah, was under attack from King Sennacherib of uh, Assyria. There is some things we do know. When Hezekiah, Hezekiah became king at age 25, Assyria controlled Judah. 
Acting with great courage, Hezekiah rebelled against this mighty empire to which his father had submitted to. He placed his faith in God's strength rather than his own. And he obeyed God's commands in spite of all the obstacles and dangers that from a purely human standpoint looked overwhelming. Hezekiah was a wise king and trusted the Lord. In fact, 2 Kings 18 says, There was never another king like him in the land of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commands the Lord had given Moses. This psalm helps contrast the foolishness of the Israelites and the Assyrians with the wisdom demonstrated by King Hezekiah. So though the immediate context of this psalm is, is on the Israelites and the Assyrians, this also has ramifications for us to live wisely and to not follow in their footsteps. As we examine this passage together, you, we would be wise if we see if any of these things I talk about are characteristic of you. Well, Psalm 53 starts off with a superinscription to the choir master, who's kind of like the leader of the choir, according to Mahalath. We don't really know what that means. Some, of, some people believe it's a well-known uh, tune. A maskil of David. Uh, they think that means kind of like a meditation of him. Verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, no God for me. They are corrupt, doing abominable inequity. That is, they're doing detestable things. There is none who does good. This brings us to my first principle. We are foolish in the eyes of God if we do not believe and acknowledge him in our hearts. Because what a person believes about God determines how he behaves and the person he will become. What is a fool? Well, a fool is a person who lives their life as if God doesn't exist. He professes to believe in God, but, but believes he is not active nor present and is without power in the world. Therefore, a fool has no need to follow and obey God because he believes there's no accountability for his words, for his actions, or his behavior in life. He has no fear of God to restrain him from committing sin. As Jesus quoted from Isaiah, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The people of Israel and Assyria were living as if God didn't, didn't exist by their disobedience to him. As a result of their unbelief and disobedience, they commanded acts such as idolatry and other acts of brutality out of complete, out of complete disregard for God and, this, and the sacredness of a human life. We see this lack of uh, acknowledging God in their hearts through I idolatry and phrases in 2 Kings 16. You know, God had commanded them, do not honor other gods. Do not bow down to them or worship them or even offer sacrifices to them. But these are the phrases that they... That, um, characterize them. They sinned secretly against the Lord. They built places to worship gods in all their cities. They put up stone pillars to gods and Asherah idols on every high hill and under every green tree. They burned incense everywhere gods were worshipped. 
They worshipped useless idols and became useless themselves. They did what the nations did all around them, which the Lord had warned them not to do. They worshipped all the stars of the skies and even Baal. They made their sons and daughters walk through the fire. They tried to find out the future by magic and witchcraft. They always chose to do what the Lord said was wrong. They made their own gods and they worshipped them. They burned their children in the fire, sacrificing them to the gods. The concluding thought universalizes the problem. There is none doing good. You know, when we don't believe or acknowledge God in our hearts, there's an absence of godliness. Jeremiah 4 says, The Lord says, My people are foolish. They do not know me. They are stupid children. They don't understand. They are skillful at doing evil, but they don't know how to do good. We are foolish in the eyes of God if we don't believe and acknowledge God in our heart. Verse 2, God looks down from heaven on the children of men, that is, on the human race, to see if there are any who understand, that is, who are acting wisely in their behavior. This brings me to the second principle. We are foolish in the eyes of God if we don't believe that he keeps track of what we say and the way that we act. When God looks down from heaven, what is he looking for? Well, the first thing he's looking for is to see if there are any who understand who are wise with their words and their behavior. Psalm 33 says, The Lord looks down from heaven and sees every person. From his throne he watches all who live on earth. He made their hearts and understands everything they do. This same thought is the one in, we found in Genesis 6 prior to the flood, where God says, God looked down upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Proverbs 15 says, The eyes of the Lord see everything. He watches both evil people and good people. 1 Corinthians 4, He the Lord will bring to light things that are now hidden in darkness and will make known the secret purposes of the people's hearts. Jeremiah 32, great and powerful God, you see everything that people do, and you reward people for the way that they live and for what they do. We see God, we see God taking note of Sennacherib's words and behavior in 2 Kings 19. It says, this is what the Lord has said against Sennacherib. You have insulted me and spoken against me. You have made fun and raised your voice against me. Sennacherib, like most of us, don't understand that we will be held accountable for what we say and what we do. Matthew 12, Jesus says, I tell you that on judgment day, people will be responsible for every careless thing they have said. The words you have said will be used to judge you. Some of your words will prove you right, but some of your words will prove you guilty. We are foolish in the eyes of God if we don't believe that he keeps track of what we say and what we do. The second part of verse 2, as God looks down from heaven, we see the second thing that he sees, and that is to see if there's any who seek after him. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that we're to seek God 
his kingdom first and what God wants, then all our needs will be taken, uh, will be met as well. And then he says in, in Matthew 10, those who hold on to their lives will give up true life. Those who give up their lives for me will hold on to true life. And this brings us to the third principle. We are foolish in the eyes of God if we are not actively seeking him, not just on Sunday mornings, but all throughout the week are we seeking him. See, the psalmist uh, pictures, uh, pictures God searching the Israelites to see if there are any seeking him. But this is what God sees. In 2 Chronicles, King Hezekiah sent letters to all the people of Israel and Judah. This is what the letters said. People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then God will return to you who are still alive, who have escaped from the kings of Assyria. Don't be like your ancestors or your relatives. They turned against the Lord. So he caused other people to be disgusted with him. Don't be stubborn, but obey the Lord willingly. Come to the temple. Serve the Lord your God so he will not be angry with you. The Lord your God is kind and merciful. He will not turn away from you if you return to him. This message went to every town in Ephraim, Manasseh, and Zebulun. But the people laughed at them and made fun of them. Verses 2 and 3 are quoted by Paul in Romans 10. As the scriptures say, no one is good, not even one. No one has real understanding. No one is seeking God. All have turned away from God. All have gone wrong. No one does good. Not even one. So if no one is seeking God, then what are people actually seeking? Well, we're seeking the ways of the world. We seek power, we seek position, praise, and possessions. This raises the questions, how can people be saved if no one is seeking God? First of all, we all have a sin nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. Thus, we are born with this natural desire to rebel, to be self-interested and be disobedient. In Romans 7, Paul says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I desire to do what is good, but I just can't carry it out. See, in ourselves, we cannot seek God. Jesus said, No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is the God who draws us to himself. That's why Ephesians 2 says, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Even our best efforts to believe for salvation fall short of the righteousness required by God. We're, so, we're saved by the grace and mercy of God. That's why scripture says no one seeks God. Titus 3 helps explain this too. It says, in the past, we were also foolish. We did not obey. We were wrong. We were slaves to the many things our body wanted and enjoyed. We spent our lives doing evil and, and being jealous. People hated us, and we hated each other. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior was shown, he saved us because of his mercy. It was not because of his good deeds we did to be right with him. 
He saved us through the washing that made us new people through the Holy Spirit. God poured out richly upon us that Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Being made right with, with God by his grace, we could have the hope of receiving the life that never ends. In other words, the only way we can see God is if the Holy Spirit has stirred our hearts with a desire for God. When God saves us, we are born again. He opens our eyes to the truth. He gives us faith and forgiveness and fellowship with him. We become new creations. And in our newness of life, he gives us new desires, a cleansed heart, and a new mind. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to truly seek after God. Fools seek after worldly things. Wise people seek after God. Verse 3. They, that is those considered foolish in the eyes of God, have fallen away. They've turned and rejected God. Together they've become morally corrupt, spoiling whatever they do. There is none who does good, not even one. This brings me to the fourth principle. We are foolish in the eyes of God if we have fallen away and stopped following his ways. Here, not only does the psalmist point a finger of, um, of, at foolish people who live their lives as, as if God doesn't exist, but he points his finger at every person whose daily life is shaped by anything less than total conformity to God's will. What a person believes about God determines how he will behave and the kind of person he will become. 2 Kings 18 says, Hezekiah was loyal to the Lord, and he did not stop following him. He obeyed the commands of the Lord and, uh, that had been given by Moses. And the Lord was with Hezekiah. So he had success in everything he did. He turned against the king of Assyria, and he stopped serving him. Fools not only fall away from God, they stop following his ways. Verse 4, have those who work evil no knowledge? That is, man, don't they ever learn? They eat up, they consume my people as, as they eat bread, and who do not call upon God. They never ask for God's help. That brings me to the fifth principle. We are foolish in the eyes of God if we never learn from our mistakes, uh, nor believe he answers prayer. The psalmist is amazed at the apparent lack of understanding to anticipate God's watchfulness and his protection of his people through answered prayer. Hezekiah was wise and he believed in prayer. Listen to this prayer in 2 Kings 19. When Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, he went to the temple of the Lord. He spread out the letter before the Lord and then he prayed to the Lord, Lord, God of Israel, whose throne is between the gold creatures with wings. Only you are God and all the kings of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Hear, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has said to insult the living God. It is true, Lord. The kings of Assyria have destroyed these countries and all the lands. They have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire. But they, but they were only wood and rock statues that people made. So the kings have destroyed them. 
Now, Lord, our God, save us from the king's power so that all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you, O Lord, are the only God. Sinatra was foolish and didn't believe Hezekiah's God was real, nor did he answer prayer. He paid the ultimate price, his death. This is what happened. 2 Kings 19. So this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria after Hezekiah prays. He will not enter the city or even shoot an arrow. He will not even fight against with shields or even build a ramp to attack the city walls. He will return to his country the same way he came. He will not enter this city, says the Lord. I will defend and save this city for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. One angel. When the people got up early the next morning, they saw all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, left and went back to Nineveh and stayed there. And one day Sennacherib was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nishrach, and his two sons killed him with a sword. Why don't foolish people call upon God? Well, because they don't believe God answers prayer. It's the attitude in Job 21. They say to God, leave us alone. We don't want to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? But wise people call upon God, and they believe he does answer prayer. Psalm 34. The Lord says the good people, sees the good people, and listens to their prayers. The Lord hears good people when they cry out to him. On Saturday, June 24th of this year, Brian Luckett was returning from Texas from Meeker, Colorado, pulling a horse trailer with three horses inside. He was coming down I-70 from, from Idaho Springs when the engine of his truck blew. He quickly got to the side of the road and got out of his truck to examine the engine and realized it had been blown. For 90 minutes, he sat there on the road and wanted to know if anybody would stop. Nobody did. There he was, stranded with three expensive horses that he had in his trailer for 10 hours, two hours on I-70, and all needing some, some care. What would you have done? Then it occurred to him that as a child of the king of the universe, he should pray and ask God if he, if he, if they, if he would send somebody to help. So he prayed that God would answer his prayer. Well, that same day, a father and son were driving westbound on I-70 in his son's truck to go pick up his dad's truck that was in the shop. They quickly noticed the stranded truck with the horse trailer on the other side of the road. And they said to themselves, man, if he's still there, when we come back, let's stop and we'll, we can help him. Because that's what Jesus would do if he were in our place. So they picked up their truck and were headed back eastbound on I-70. They noticed the truck and the trailer was still there, so they pulled up behind. The man from Texas says, anything you can do to help me would be great. He said the engine of his truck was shot and that he had three uh, quarter horses in the trailer that desperately needed food and water. The father and son 
said they could help. We own a ranch a few miles, and we can take care of your horses until you can get back to get them. The man from Texas says, I don't know if you guys are men of faith, but I prayed 15 minutes ago that God would bring someone to help me. We would be able to place and keep my horses safe. And then you both showed up. The father and son said they were Christ's followers and began helping the man. The dad pulled his truck out from the trailer and the son hooked up the trailer to the truck um, with the right kind of hitch right behind him. The dad took the man to a nearby hotel and then returned to the ranch uh, where they had taken the horses. The father and son told them that they would take care of their horses free of charge where the, uh, until they could return to get them. The man was extremely thankful. And the following Saturday, the man returned with his son's truck to pick up the horses and to return to Texas. By the way, that father and son that stop go to this church. They, they work on our security team. Their names are Kevin and Trace Elmgren. If Brian Luckett were here today, he would tell you that you are a fool if you do not believe that God answers prayer. Fools not only need to call upon God, they also have no fear of him. Verse 5, this is a difficult verse, by the way, that's why. There they are, that is God's people in great terror because of Sinatra and his army, where there is no terror. Uh, God's people hadn't, been, hadn't had to be fearful before. For God scatters their bones, that is what he's going to do with Sennacherib and his army, who encamps against you, that is God's people. You, Hezekiah, by your prayer, by your belief in prayer, put them, Sennacherib and his army, to shame with a humbling defeat. For God has rejected them, that is Sennacherib and his army. That brings us to the next principle. We are foolish in the eyes of God if we do not fear him. To fear the Lord means to be reverent awe of his holiness, to give him complete reverence, praise, and honor. Psalm 34, I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My whole being praises the Lord. I asked the Lord for help, and he answered me. He saved me from all that I feared. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear God, and he saves them. Examine and see how good the Lord is. Happy is the person who trusts him. And then Psalm 9, I mean Proverbs 9. You know, wisdom begins with respect for the Lord. And understanding begins by knowing the Holy One. If you live wisely, you will live a long time. Wisdom will add to your years, to your life. The wise person is rewarded by wisdom. But whoever makes fun of wisdom will suffer for it. Sennacherib had no fear of Hezekiah's God. In 2 Chronicles, he's speaking. He says, you know what my ancestors and I have done to all these people of all the nations. The gods of those nations could not save their people from my power. My ancestors destroyed those nations. None of their gods could save them from me. So your God cannot save you from my power. No God of any nation or kingdom has been able to save his people from me or my ancestors. 
Your God is even less able to save you from me. Sinatra's Arby's army officers even said worse things against the Lord. Well, God will act against those outside forces encamped against him, those who fear God. You know, it would be easy for us to say that this passage just relates to King Sinatra, but the reality is this passage really relates to each of us. We can easily live our lives independently of God, not fearing him or relying upon him. Romans 14, and why do you think you are better than they are? We all stand before God to be judged because it is written in the scriptures. As surely as I live, says the Lord, everyone will bow before me. Everyone will say that I am God. So each of us will give an answer to the Lord. That brings us to the last verse. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come to Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the last principle. We are foolish in the eyes of God if we don't put our hope in God and his promises for the future. In verse 6, the psalmist reminds us that a time is coming when the wicked and evil presence of those who oppress God's people will end and God's people will rejoice. See, the psalmist is confident that those who refuse to acknowledge God in their hearts will face judgment. The psalmist is certain about God's action, even though he doesn't know when it's going to happen. Psalm 96 says, Let all creation rejoice because the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Jude 14 says, Look, the Lord is coming with many thousands of his holy angels to judge every person. He is coming to push all who are against God for all the evil they have done against him. And he will punish the sinners who are against God for all the evil they have said against him. All the time, at that time, the psalmist wrote this, this poem, and it was sung, Jesus, the coming Messiah, was only a prophecy, a promise to come. But he is coming, probably coming sooner than each of us think. We are fools in the eyes of God if our hope is not in him and in the promises for his future. Well, if today we've learned several things, and I don't think anybody fell asleep. Thank you. <laughs> we are foolish in the eyes of God if we don't believe and acknowledge God in our hearts, that we don't believe that God keeps track of what we say and how we act, if we are not actively seeking God, if we haven't fallen away and stopped following his ways, if we never learn from our mistakes nor believe he answers prayer, if we do not fear God, and last, we are foolish in the eyes of God if we don't put our hope in God and his promises in the future. What a person believes about God does matter. It determines how we behave and the kind of person we are becoming, whether foolish or wise. Thus, the most foolish thing we can do is to leave God out of our lives by living independently of him as if he doesn't exist.